0: On this episode, I interviewed Dr. Teddy Wilsy, who is a founder of Healthy Baller Physical Therapy. The main topic of this episode was talking about going from research, finding research, and putting that into application. So we first kind of talked about how Dr. Wilsy looks or has developed a passion for for finding uh, research and implementing that. We then talked about how he goes about looking at different articles and how he recommends practitioners, athletes, as well as um, just general patients to to sift through the information. We talked about how he communicates that information to his athletes or his patients. We talked about ways he goes through trying to implement this uh, after he reads an article. We talked about different challenges that he ta- that he faces sometimes and how he, he goes about dealing with those to make sure it's practical. And then I think the biggest one on the end, we kind of talked a little bit about the line of evidence-based research versus kind of clinical your clinical experience, etc., and how to walk that line, how to make it you know, the best of both worlds. So great episode. Here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date evidence-based content and knowledge through your life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Wick Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood. And today I have on Dr. Teddy Wilsey, who is the founder of Healthy Baller Physical Therapy. So thank you very much for being on. really appreciate it. Uh, if you just want to start off and, and tell us a little bit about yourself, the back, your background, um, kind of how you got in the position is in you're in today, and we can kind of go from there. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. Uh, just a little bit about kind of my background. I started off in this field as a strength and conditioning coach. And I was fortunate enough to go through my physical therapy or my physio education with kind of that that context of strength conditioning as the background. And, um, you know, what I've done over the past uh, five years with founding this physical therapy practice is really tried to bring strength conditioning concepts and also concepts of, of, you know, emergent research and evidence based practice to physical therapy, because I think uh, so often. Uh, physios tend to kind of mail it in, or or they don't. There's they they don't necessarily serve our athlete athletic population as well as we could. And so, uh, you know, my background starting strength and conditioning, then going back to school for physical therapy was my goal throughout this entire time was really to kind of blend those two um, those two disciplines and use the tools of a strength and conditioning coach with the application and critical thinking mindset of a physical therapist.
0: Yeah, yeah, great. And then maybe even expand a little bit about um how you taken that and then starting up Healthy Baller and the and the ID behind that within the US as well.
1: Yeah, so uh the setup of our practice, we are located uh we have uh, two locations and we're in uh sports performance gym and really what happened was, uh, five years ago, I approached a friend of mine who I've been, uh, we've been friends for seven or eight years at the time. And I, and he had just started healthy baller and, uh, he's a former uh, professional strength conditioning coach on the, uh, in professional sports setting in the NFL and NBA and a guy who's pretty well accomplished in the field. And he was kind of settling in on a, you know, a private industry approach to, to strength and conditioning. And, uh, I just wanted to be a part of it. And so I approached him with this idea. Hey, uh, I'd love to if you just let me kind of set up shop here and let me take a bet on myself. Uh, and he was like, well, what, where do you want to do this? And I was kind of pointing to the back of the weight room. I was like, well, I could just throw a table up there and that's how we can get started. And he was like, well, Hey man, if you want to do that, go for it. And uh, you know, fast forward for uh, five years, uh, we've been fortunate enough to grow to two locations. I've got four physical therapists that, that work with me. And um you know, I, I think we've found that at least where we are in the Washington, D.C. area uh, in the U.S., we, there's a big demand for it. There's a big, big demand for a return to sport physical therapy. There are a lot of people that, you know, they don't know what to do to bridge the gap from maybe four or five months post-op ACL and running on a treadmill to getting back on the field. They don't know what to do in that time period And we started off by really just trying to focus on return to sport and try to focus on, you know, hamstring pulls in season and and athletes that needed to go right back out on the field. But what it's grown into is we're seeing like acute care type of patients, you know, we're seeing them from the post-operative period all the way through. We've developed relationships with some physicians in the area who are happy to send us their patients because we're communicative with them, we're evidence-based and we're, and we're getting good results and outcomes. And so, uh, you know, much to my surprise, um, we've, I mean, you know, I was confident in what we did, but I don't know if I could have expected this, but we've been fortunate just to grow and to, uh, really spread through, through word of mouth. And I think, you know, the average physio consumer is, uh, is more aware of what's out there than they were five or 10 years ago thanks to uh, social media and and a lot of other things out there. And so we've been able to take advantage of all of those trends, trends in fitness, you know, fitness is cooler than it was 10 years So all of these things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I think, uh, like I said, initially even talking about combining the strength conditioning with physical therapy, uh, it's kind of one of the goals of this podcast as well, to kind of help spread that combination and the knowledge in both of those aspects. Um, So we're going to kind of, I think, dive in maybe to the, the beginning of all this, of how you start to, I guess, reason and, and take the research and, and develop, finding out the research of what, what's good, what's bad, how do you look at it, and then transferring that and applying it and making it practical. So again, that's going to be kind of our main topic today. So maybe just first talk a little bit about how you got into trying to be evidence-based, why you wanted to be evidence-based, the importance of it, um, and then how you kind of we'll move into how you stay up to date with the literature and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I I found that when I was in physical therapy school, I just enjoyed reading papers. I kind of liked breaking down the strength of a paper, thinking about what was behind it. And I found it interesting that there was this like human aspect to research because a lot of times we think of research as a very mechanical or uh, science driven thing and we we forget that there's humans behind it. And so I I found it exciting to just look at, okay, this paper tells us maybe the takeaways from it aren't that great, but we learned this from it And, and seeing the imperfections and, you know, science is a constant practice where we're never we're, we're never arriving at one's true answer. We're, we're constantly evolving and changing and changing our minds a lot too. And so I just, I found like that whole process to be pretty interesting. And I was fortunate to have a, a professor who was pretty influential in that too. And, you know, we had our journal club and PT school and, and I'm sure a lot of physio students are involved in that sort of thing as an extracurricular activity. And so uh, I always, I gravitated towards that. And I found that I would sometimes, go into rabbit holes of reading articles rather than actually studying what was on my test the next day, you know, and, and I found, and so I, I knew, and and at that point, you know, I, I started physical school when I was 26. And so I already had a couple years of practice under my belt as as the strength coach. And and I was very into reading as a strength coach too, and into learning. And so as I moved, uh, but whereas when I was reading and learning there, it was like Virgo it was super training, it was, you know, science and practice, it was much more of the kind of the Eastern European approach to strength and conditioning, uh, power development, you know, and so when I gravitate, when I ended up in the physio world and I gravitated towards the research there, I just, I I really liked it. I found myself, like I said, going down these rabbit holes. And so, you know, as a, um, as a physical therapist, I get out of school and I'm practicing and I'm like, none, none of my colleagues are like into this, you know, I'm kind of in this like average standard clinic where the only conversation you ever have with your colleague is about like what the next rest what the restaurant is that they should go to or or what, what they're watching on Netflix. You know, you're not, there's nobody, nobody was really like passionate about the actual practice and what they were doing. And so, um, you know, when I went to start my own practice and then was able to grow and, and hire somebody, I just resolved to to make research such a big part of what we did and and reading research and not just boring stuff, but finding papers about return to sport, finding papers that were helpful, finding papers that have practical application, you know, and, and that's not always easy, but it's uh, right. There's always these systematic reviews out there that, that everything kind of regresses to the norm and, and you read the paper and you're like, I don't even know what all of these statistical analyses are. And at the end of the paper, it just said, any exercise works for back pain, that's not helpful, you know? And so um, I found that like, even breaking down those papers, you can still take things from them here and there. But um, yeah, I think my, my passion for research has only grown with time because I've been able to be in a position where I'm uh, excitedly showing other people the same passion that I have. You know, and so uh, we we are a, uh, a facility that takes on students. We've had five going on six full-time students in clinical rotations uh, with us. We, we believe very strongly in education and on paying it forward, and that's the best way to make this profession grow. And so, uh, you know, between being a mentor to the people that I hire, being a, a, a teacher to the students that we bring on, I... And and then some of the work that I do with Physio Network and the the monthly research reviews I do with them, um, I just find myself constantly immersed in in literature.
0: Yeah, no, I think yeah, those are great points. And then with the um, maybe that's obviously something that's going to be setting you apart from from other people. As as you mentioned, you've you've grown and so on. And you mentioned practices before where it was more of just you know talking about Netflix or what are you do on the weekend, et cetera. Whereas um, you guys try to stay immersed in the in the in education and keep growing to get results as well as um, stay up to date with everything. And um, we still, we still like to have fun and joke around <laughs> and, you know, but, yeah. um, but
1: I, I think that when you're in this profession and people are coming to us lost, people are coming to us looking for answers and hope, and we can have such a profound impact on their lives uh, that it's irresponsible of us to not try to be the best practic- practitioners that we can.
0: Yeah. hundred uh, percent. I guess uh, moving to the next thing, it's important, we've kind of mentioned, and, and it's important to, to do this. How do you go about saying, finding papers, sifting through, de- deciding what to read? Because obviously, even if, um, whether that's a patient or an athlete, or sorry, a patient, athlete, or a, a practitioner, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot out there. So what's your advice? I mean, maybe we'll talk about how you do it, and then we can go into how you t- ask other people or tell other people to kind of look through it.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I I think the very first thing that I typically do is just kind of go to the British Journal of Sports Medicine, Journal of Orthopedic Sports Physical Therapy, JOSPT, PT, and some of these major journals. And, and I'm just looking at what's come out recently, you know, just like you might go to a website and see a blog and, and or a popular blog that you like to read and see what's new. You can do the same thing on a lot of these websites. And so journals are much more accessible for the digital age than maybe they were five or ten years ago. Uh, And, you know, typically once you do that, you are going to, and you, or you go to PubMed, you're going to get linked to, you know, Hey, you like this? You might like that too. You know, just like on Amazon where you end up looking at extension cords for 20 minutes because you looked at one extension cord, you know? So instead of uh, shopping for extension cords, I'm shopping for, you know, papers on hamstrings. And next thing you know, I've got six different papers on return to sport ideas and criteria, and we can start to use that to to put together our our own ideas and apply to our own patients. And so I find that it it really does kind of beget itself. Once you start looking at papers, you can get led to other ones. And um, over time, you also get to know a lot of the, um, not a lot, but some of the more commonly seen authors that are doing a lot of great work on tendinopathy, on ACL rehab, on different soft tissue injuries, And so you can just kind of go and look at those authors, uh, you know, bodies of works too. body of work, Um, you know, and there's also I think that uh, like for Physio Network, for example, we're always trying to do new papers. That's that's what we do. I'm never doing a paper that's more than a month old because that's we've established that that kind of precedent and we have 12 papers every month. Uh, But there's still a lot to be taken from old papers. So you don't need to always look at papers that came out in twenty twenty one. You know and, and sometimes you might find that uh, a, an older paper has been updated a little bit or it might be used in a newer review, but you can typically find that through the link through the link process in PubMed below each paper. So uh, it really just takes a you know you got to kind of just get lost in it a little bit. you're not It's not so easy as just having them all easily delivered to your inbox. Um, They're also like QXMD is a really popular app that people use quite a bit. Uh, to find papers and organize them so there's are there are also some other options from that standpoint i've never um i have not consistently used an app for them but uh, i feel like i have enough already (laughs) but um yeah i know that that's something that people do use quite a bit too
0: yeah and when you when you approach these do you recommend or do you when do you go in with you know this is something I want to look into or sometimes you just look straight up, look at the the general site, see what's new and go from there. Do you have a recommendation on one of those Um, or, or either one just depending on the situation?
1: I would say that going into it with a purpose is probably the most effective way to do it. And so Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've had the um, opportunity to speak to some different groups and, and teach on some concepts over the years in more of a public setting as well. And when I'm putting together my coursework for that or putting together slides, that's when I'm really doing those deep dives where I've pulled, you know, 25 articles on, on adductor injuries or, or whatever it may be. And so I, for me personally, I, I, in my process, I feel like really looking into one topic at a time is probably going to yield a better result and understanding of that topic than just saying, oh, I wanna see what's new out there, you know? And so uh, I think there's this common uh, adage of like keeping up with the research and how that can be like a really challenging thing. And it absolutely is. I'm not reading every paper every month, but if you're just doing deep dives into topics that are specific to your patient population, uh, I think that that is enough. And Mm -hmm. over time, if you continue to do that, you will learn a lot about those,
0: those commonly occurring pathologies in your practice. Yeah. Okay. So for practitioners, recommendation is kind of go in deep dives in different topics and and become kind of more of um, as much of an expert as you can on that topic. And then once you have those, it's easier to update as you go along. Plus then you can just continually grow those deep dives and become more well-rounded specifically to your patient population. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, so obviously that's really specific towards practitioners or people, you know, that, that have this people that, you know, come to you, obviously you're not probably going to, you're not going to expect them to go in and read all these papers or athletes and so on. So are there things you recommend for them? Because obviously, you know, the most popular thing is probably just going to be a Google search, looking up this, looking up that. And obviously there's probably, there's not, there's a lot of information out there that, you know, isn't, isn't what you're probably telling people. So how do you approach that and how do you recommend athletes so on t- to research it? Um, or do you just not and say, listen, you know, kind of listen to me or wh- what are your, how do you go about that? Well,
1: you know, I, I think like most physios, I'm constantly put in a position where I'm like at a wedding, three drinks in and somebody asks me about their hamstring injury that they have or their back pain or, you know, um, my general advice to people is to lean on. I really you know try to champion our profession I I tell people you know try to talk to somebody but I I say that with the preface of try to find somebody that is going to be appropriate for you and somebody that is a good fit for you and because I think that so often you know there there are physios out there that will they're happy to see anybody, but they might not be able to help you really reach your goals. So if I'm talking to somebody that's my age and they are trying to still perform at a high level now and then, you know, uh, even if they're a weekend warrior, they might not be well suited if the rest of that physio schedule that day is knee replacements, hip replacements, and sciatica, you know, they might not get what they want out of that, out of that rehabilitation experience. And so I, I tell people, try to try to fit you. That is a good match for your goals. Um, you know, if it's somebody that I think can handle or digest or is interested in evidence-based information that can be, that is uh, targeted enough toward a, a lay person that it would be helpful for them. I, I will suggest some, some resources, you know, potentially, but um, I will sometimes point them to my own Instagram if it's if they're just looking for a, a few stretches or exercises. Uh, but I, you know, I think that when we just approach Google with a, I, I, I say a lot like you know I joke around like doctors still Google things. You know, it's not everybody uses search engines. But but when we approach a search engine without a framework and without knowing, without this, like you could you could search for something, Patrick, and you would automatically see six really crappy results and four good ones. And you would know, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even remember the crappy ones because you just look right past them. But for somebody else, that clickbait might pull them right in. And so I really try to tell people get off the search engines and, and, you know, find a good trusted resource.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, and so whether you tell them to research or not, it's one thing. What about when you then are trying to convey Um, information to them, how much is it going to obviously be patient dependent or how much do you go into, look, this paper says this, this paper says this, this paper says this, this is all the evidence versus this is just what you should do. So in this scenario, like if I'm treating somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So like, how do you decide between saying like, just straight up, like quoting and reading all this stuff versus just straight up saying, you know, this is what you should do.
1: You know, I I think the the, the famous answer in physio is always, it depends. And mm-hmm. you know, I think that's the famous thinking person's answer to begin with, but it's not a helpful answer unless we talk about what it depends on. Um, for me, it's really depending on how that person is presenting their levels of pain, their, my, their confidence, my rapport with them, and what exactly I'm talking about. If it's somebody during an evaluation, and this is a mistake I made early in my career. If it's somebody during an evaluation And they're telling me about and their pain stuff doesn't really line up. And I'm thinking, okay, this is probably a patient that's gonna have kind of a more long-standing pain presentation. This is somebody that we might need to work through some some thought processes that are not uh, where they should be, or this person has a misconception of how pain and and patho the whole, you know, they're too focused on the pathoanatomical model. Early in my career, I might have told them, you know, there's a lot of research behind how pain is uh, multifactorial and it can come from the brain and stuff, you know. And they're like, they, that person in that evaluation, they don't want to hear about research. They want to hear anecdotes. They want to hear about somebody else who is similar that you have helped, you know. And so I think that slowing down and not trying to convey my knowledge of research papers and stuff has actually maybe helped me with working with that kind of patient, you uh, I think that people in general learn a lot through anecdotes. So I don't know how well, but if I were to tell you, Hey, Patrick, I saw a patient last month who really benefited from this. You'd be like, so like, what's the research behind it? You know, just that, that one massage technique you use that one time or, you know Uh, but for, for, I think for people, it, it really helps to teach in stories and not cite research all the time. I do, I can't help but allow my kind of my passion and my, my interest in research to come out and I think it can be helpful in times where I'll tell people like, you know, um, there's, there's good research. So for example, a patient I was just working with his, uh his lower leg kept rotate. We're working with the hamstring, his lower leg continually rotates out when he's doing a leg curl. And I told him about how that is selectively targeting his outer hamstrings. We have good research behind the different toe angles and how we target the biceps femoris versus, you know, other, our medial hamstrings. And so, uh, I I told, I just mentioned it to him that that was part of the compensation that he's exhibiting. And it's because, you know, so I don't have to tell him, oh, well, you know, so-and-so or Jill Cook said this, or, you know, I say, like I can just tell him um, a, a scientific based fact that he knows that I understand through research in that process. Uh, but I'm not trying to Change his mind with research, I'm just simply hopefully conveying some um, knowledge, but it's not about me in that in that conversation. I just want him to understand that there's a method behind the madness, and why I'm telling him to do these things is because of something that specifically is playing into the injury that he's presenting with hmm. so I will cite research in that way. you know I talk to people uh so he already understands. Whereas working through this hamstring pull, he understands why we're doing weighted sled sled drag runs because they reduce his stride length and increase his stride frequency. And with greater stride length, we get greater lengthening of the hamstring, which can lead to that pull. And so, uh, you know, I cite these things all the time from a scientific standpoint for my patients, but I I tend to not use the word research that often. Whereas I did a lot more earlier in my career.
0: Yeah. Okay. So more of just giving justification without having to be like this person in 2008 said this. And then like you just say, this is the reason why you're doing it. So then they understand it without going super in depth. Precisely.
1: And, and, you know, I work with a a really wide demographic um, from an age standpoint, you know, I see, I see adults, but I would say 80% of the people I see are under the age of 25. And so a lot of those people, they, they want to feel confident Uh, Or they want, they want to be confident that you know what you're doing, but they, they might not necessarily want all that information. You know, they're, they're kind of, they're younger, they're worried about the net, what's coming next. And so, um, you know, you have to really kind of figure out from an individual standpoint, who, who is the, who wants that information, who might benefit from that versus who is just going to kind of tune it out or or maybe just think it's um, too much information.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think that was good. It covered how you look through research, how um, you recommend athletes, patients, as well as other practitioners to go look at research. I guess I wanted to talk about one more thing before we kind of move on to more of the implementation and how you go with that. Uh, you mentioned initially you uh, you you know you'd, um, would read a lot of research papers instead of studying for stuff in school, et cetera. And, and that was your obviously the passion and how you grew and what you are now. Do you have any recommendations for either students or teachers at schools or professors at schools or schools in general, or, or how you think the best way would be go about approaching that to maybe make it a little bit more evidence-based or, or do things similar to that?
1: Uh, you know, for me, I'll, I'll give the recommendation from my, from my niche and from my kind of area of expertise that I've uh, really been working on developing. And it's, you know, I think that uh, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast athlete athletes are grossly underserved in the physio community. And I think that a lot of physical therapists, uh, don't quite know what to do with them or how to challenge them. And they have very much a kind of a, we call it CYA medicine to cover your ass, you know, and they, they don't want to push them, but in order to help somebody return to sport, you have to. And so I just wish that at least from my personal experience and a lot of experiences that I'm, um, I'm privy to and other students that reach out to me and tell me these things. I I think that uh, the physical therapy curriculum should have a little bit of a specific emphasis on sports that it does not have. I'm fully aware. And I really appreciate the fact that physical therapy is such a wide and varied job. You know, some people are helping uh, individuals after strokes and spinal cord injuries. We're helping people get up out of bed and in the hospital, we're helping people from all walks of life, from all levels of function, all ages. Uh, but the, the athlete is a, there's a lot of people and there's only, it's only increasing as, as you know, that, that kind of age of athleticism is widening and you have athletes competing into their forties and you have weekend warriors. I just think that, um, that there should be a little bit more education in that area. And I think that there should also be more education in the importance of the psychology of pain, you know, if we want to call it pain science, but some of the ideas behind how uh, impactful our words can be and how helpful it can be uh, to, to patients to just kind of validate their experiences and to sit down and listen and to not be that kind of that brash healthcare provider that just tells them, Oh, well, you can't do this anymore. You know? So um, I think that uh, curriculums could use a little bit, both a little bit more of both of those. Um, it's such a broad field. You know, I, I think that eventually there's probably branches of, or at least in the U S system, I think that we probably need residencies and more specific branches of physical therapy. Uh, but you know, that's where we are right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I agree. With that it makes sense. I guess, Moving into that, like I said, implementation. So, after you read, after you read an article, uh, do you go through any processes in determining? Okay, yep, I like this. I'm going to use it. And if so, do you test it out beforehand? Do you, you know, how do you go about all that before? So, like I said, from paper to to putting it into practice, what are your steps to go through to make sure? Um, yeah, you like it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, I'll give you an example of a couple different articles that we've looked at recently, just in our 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 staff meetings that we have with, with uh, healthy ball PT. Um, We looked at a return to sport article on bank art repairs recently and they had a specific testing battery. And so we went through and we did the testing battery ourselves in our meeting and you know felt we experienced uh, how challenging it was, what a norm might be. For example, for that seated shot put throw, the seated six pound or I, I think we used a three kilogram uh, mini medicine ball seated shot put You get your back pressing against the wall we 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 used our inline dynamometer and tested external rotation strength at 90 90 and and zero degrees of abduction and and 45 degree, you know we so we tested those different things and and we we did it with the goal of being more comfortable implementing what we found in that research paper right or or more recently we we looked at an adductor return to sport test and uh we got into this kind of side conversation about the idea of testing soft tissue injuries with maximal length plus maximal tension so for the adductor you pull somebody's leg you all the way into abduction and have them pull down or you do like a longer length copenhagen where they're in abduction and they're holding themselves up in that copenhagen plank uh you know and and we took turns kind of feeling those different exercises ourselves. And then we also started to talk about pelvic positioning and pelvic rotation and how that can affect the length of the adductor and the the volitional contraction of the adductor. Um, You know, we we try to, and, and this is something that I think is easier done with a small group of people that are all kind of engaged on these topics, but we try to take these papers that have actionable things in them and put those into practice. And, um, you know, I'm responsible for structuring these meetings with my staff. And so um, if there's a paper that doesn't have as much actionable stuff, we can still talk about some of our cases or our patients and go over some things that we, we like to do with them or just talk about different curious presentations we've seen, you know. And so um, we, we try to put those. I try to find, like I said earlier, I try to find papers that have actionable items in them, but sometimes good papers don't. And that's just part of research. And then yeah we we I think that you know taking a hands-on approach and, and just like we did in, in school with our labs I think is such an important part of what we do. Uh, I strongly believe in that in terms of like training and uh, I would never hire a physical therapist that didn't like to work out themselves, you know. Uh, that's I hope that's not workplace discrimination, but uh, I think that we we truly have to, you know, understand the tools that we have at our disposal and know how to use them in order to best apply them. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I love trying to put that research stuff, uh, the, those research, you know, things that we can get from papers into practice as much as possible.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, when, before you do that, do you do you go through like do you do a quick screen of the article, and is there anything, you know, we you could obviously dive into how you really would break down a paper, et cetera, and all this is bad and this is good. But is there any general things you just look for that that you say like, oh, this makes this paper that I I might want to look at it further and then try it out? Like I said, we don't have to go super in depth because obviously you can critique a paper a lot, but just some general things you would look for.
1: Yeah, a couple, one big thing I'm looking at is, you know, so let's say, excuse me, let's say it's a randomized controlled trial. So it's going to be a smaller number of participants. You're not going to get thousands of participants for something like that, but it's a trial that, that has an intervention or has some sort of test. they're looking at. Um, I'm looking at the, the demographic of the patient population. You know, if I'm, it's not going to be helpful. This is common sense, but you'd be surprised how often you get through a paper and you don't realize it's not going to be helpful for me as a practitioner to look at, uh, a paper about how well people do with conservative care for rotator cuff tears, if I realized that that paper was on people aged 50 and up, because that's mm-hmm. a primary demographic that's going to experience those those uh, atraumatic rotator cuff tears that respond well to conservative care. So it's really important to look at the demographic and the population that they're studying to make sure that that lines up with what you're doing from a practice standpoint. If you are not in as specialized of a practice as we are here, then maybe that's not as important, but it's still a it's still helpful to consider, you know. Um, I'm also looking at the type of paper that that it is, and you know, I generally, like I mentioned earlier, systematic reviews. They look at a lot of different papers. They have very large participant numbers altogether. Once you add up all the participants from the different papers, and when you start to, this is just the way statistics work. Things regress back to the norm when you go into this wide law of averages. And so, for a systematic review. You cannot expect to have really strong specific takeaways from papers. And so I know that going into it and I'm not expecting that systematic review to change the way I'm practicing on Monday, you know? And so uh, I'm, I will look for different types of papers based on how I want this, the experience of reading the paper and what I get from it to be.
0: Yeah. Okay. So systematic reviews too, you look at it more of a, a general review and then, Look into more of the papers, depending upon what the findings were. And if you're interested in, it.
1: yeah, and you know, so often systematic reviews are, are part of their purpose is to uh, kind of remind us that a lot of different things work, and that things do do re- regress to the norm. And that you know the example I gave of low back pain and exercise, we've seen so often that people don't respond to core activation specific low back exercises, or they don't. Right. But but I think it's still important on an individual level to start to understand the indications for who might be a better candidate for that type of exercise, because we have to do something with people. We can't just sit them there for an hour and tell them that their disease will have an, you know, oh, it'll just it'll have a normal course and it'll most likely be over in 10 to 12 weeks. And, you know, we have to do something with these people when they come in to see us. And so, uh, you might not get that actionable information of what to do from the systematic review, but it should, the systematic review should give you this idea of like, okay, there's a lot of different things that I can do. The goal is just not, don't mess it up. You know? Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, I think that they're still, they're still extremely valuable and that's something that I've grown to appreciate that maybe I didn't, uh, I found them to be a little bit more boring. I would say early on in my practice, whereas now I, I, I really see the value in that, yeah. that, uh, type of research.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything that you've recently changed um, due to any new information? I know you mentioned kind of going through those batteries, et cetera. I don't know if you've implemented those or anything else that you can think about that was like, oh, that's a, you know something that's I've read that's really good. And then this is something I've changed recently.
1: Yeah. So there's uh, one specific paper on tenderness map- mapping for palpation for hamstring injuries. And I thought that was a pretty neat paper. And uh, I actually used it. Let's see. So the authors on that were Schmidt, uh, Tyler, and Quisen, and it was uh, in the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy in 2020. And I thought it was um, a cool paper because it was just a novel idea. Like I never thought to myself, okay, I get somebody in with a hamstring injury, I'm going to actually draw out on their posterior thigh where they're experiencing pain from my palpation, take a photo of that, measure it, and then use that photo as a reference point to start to determine how they're feeling better. I, I have never, you know, as you can probably assume, I'm not like some guru manual therapist that spends an hour on the table with my patients and a whole bottle of lotion. And so although I might palpate my patients and kind of determine their, their improvement over time, I never took that methodical or an objective of an approach to palpation and the ham- hamstring mapping for tenderness to palpation uh was it was helpful. It helped them to prognosticate. That was one of the outcomes of the paper was to prognosticate and see how how quickly people returned. And so that's something that I used for uh I think like no less than three weeks after I read that paper, I used that on somebody that had a calf strain. And uh now I'm kind of moving beyond the research there to use it for a different body part, but I would think that maybe there's some applicability there. And so That's a perfect example of something where like you learn this technique and you're like, Oh, boom, let's, let's do it. And so, uh, you know, that was something that I was able to, you know, it's a pretty straightforward capturing overall, but I was able to just kind of objectify where he felt tenderness. And then we were able to look back at it. And it was, uh, you know, I think part of objective measures too, in addition to informing our decision-making is they help patients to be more confident and to understand the process. And so uh especially with a soft tissue injury, when you tell your patient your your high level athlete, like, okay, now you're ready now this next rep, you're gonna run hundred percent. And they're like, You sure I'm ready for that? you know, and so it's like you kind of go through that. you you tell them this is why this is why you're ready, this you know. Mm-hmm. So um I felt that the the palpation tenderness mapping was a neat, yeah. A neat paper.
0: Yeah, for sure. When so like obviously I don't know how many challenges there was in that situation, but in in, in general, would you say there's decent or everything common challenges you face when trying to implement things and, and, or whether that be issues you face and how you deal with them or, or something along those lines.
1: I think the biggest challenge we face is time, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we can't do everything we want to do. Even the 10 minutes mapping, you know, I was like, okay, well, if I spend 10 minutes doing this, what am I going to spend 10 less minutes doing? You know? And mm-hmm. so um I think the biggest challenge that we run into as physios is, what is the best use of our time? Because there are so many different good things that we could do. You know, is, is having that, that talk with your patient and the education piece, the best use of your time all the time? For some people it is, for some people, like the kind of flippant teenagers I was describing that don't want that information, it might not be. Uh, so I think that that's the biggest challenge that I have is determining the indications for who might benefit from these different methods that We learn, um, and then also the finding the time to do it in terms of, like, you know, how often are we doing this return to sport testing? Is this going to take up the entire session? You know, and so, um, not everything that is evidence based is always practical, and that's a big part of being a clinician is you have to kind of draw that or find that you have to walk that line a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of was, was going to go to the next question, I was going to ask. of. So obviously, you know, things aren't practical, as you mentioned, is there, how do you, is there certain ways like you like something, you know, that might be perfect in uh, a, a, a controlled and super controlled environment that you want to try and implement? Are there other ways you try and think of, or I don't know if you want an example, to go through it, or if there's anything just general principles you go about when you say this isn't really practical, I like it, I'm going to try and implement it this way. Is, is there anything or is it literally just trying things out and seeing how it goes?
1: Well, you know, we always test things out, and so, and we, um, we're always trying something with ourselves and ensuring that we kind of have a process for it before we go to our patients. And so, um, the example would be when we started using inline dynamometry to a greater extent, uh, and also when we started using force plates for ACL return to sport testing. Uh, we made sure that we were very comfortable setting that up on our own, that we could do things quickly. And uh, we also discussed where, you know, maybe one ACL patient, uh, it might not be as appropriate to do this one specific test as another one. And so, um, you know, I think that the indication part of it uh, combined with the practicality is where we start to really get that, that hone in on that decision-making process of what, what specific things we do want to implement um, from a research standpoint.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then, going I guess one step further again so you obviously have all this evidence right and you have um, you read it all etc and then you have when you actually have to practice it on a patient so you know being evidence-based or being you know whatever you want to call it uh, as well as combining that with your clinical knowledge and 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 reasoning what's your advice on that or how do you go about reasoning through that yourself because obviously that's probably you know the biggest thing that a lot of people a lot of practitioners struggle with is Find, finding that line to to do both
1: yeah yeah you know i think that um there's so much value in a world outside of research and i think that if you're a let's say you're a young practitioner you don't have a deep rich background in exercise uh you don't know a ton about strength and conditioning. You want to work with active people, you need to go outside of research, you need to just learn from strength and conditioning coaches, you need to learn from other exercise disciplines, you need to, uh, you know, maybe even learn from like sport coaches and learn drills and, and you know, I think that there's um, so much to be had outside of research and if we get too bogged down with that systematic review idea of nothing we're doing works, but everything we do works. And we, and we aren't focused on the actual practical aspects of, of practice. Uh, I think that it can kind of slow down or, or hold us up from helping as many people as possible. And then the other side of that too, is, you know, we, we, we wanted today to be a, a, a research and evidence-based conversation, but um, the first thing that I try to do when I get a new patient in the door is make them laugh. You know, the first thing that I try to do is I was talking to my friend, Sam Spinelli today about a patient that I have. And he was, and he asked me like what the approach was for the first. And I said, well, you know, to be honest, my, my focus today was on building rapport. And he's like, Oh yeah, totally. Like, and it's like, that was my evaluation focus. It wasn't on like defining their scapular angles or their, or whatever, you know, or, or looking at their scapular humeral rotation or, you know, uh, or any or rhythm or anything like that it wasn't on it was like and, and it was because it, it was more of a kind of a an athlete with a chronic pain a tennis player with a chronic pain issue with his shoulder that it kind of spiraled into this chronic issue and you know um, I was like and that's a difference between probably my approach and other practitioners like the other practitioners that, that he's seen up to this point have taken a very patho anatomical approach you know, so like he told me, the first practitioner uh, was very focused on his posture and his positioning. His second practitioner was very focused on strength and kept saying, "You have to keep stronger. You have to get stronger." And he was like, "You know, I feel like I'm strong, and I also feel like my posture is fine." And and I was like, "Well, you they you are, and it is, and you know." And so um, that's where kind of that pain science uh, mention that I did earlier about what I think curriculum should focus more on. I think that's where we have to constantly pull beyond the evidence, we have to go into like the field of psychology, which is more of a soft science, if you will, and learn how to connect with people. And, um, you know, I don't think that we can get nearly the outcomes that we uh, want and help as many people in our field if we're not willing to just like be a human with them sometimes too. Uh, so that, that that's, you know, and those are people that I'm not citing research day one with them or anything like that. You know, those are people that I just want to build a good relationship with. And so I think that um, that's like the other side of this whole discussion of like how to, how to practically apply
0: evidence. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, that, that, <clears throat> it's a good point too, like I said, of, of having evidence, but also then being a human as well is, is a good point. I, th- I think um, building off that as well. So what do you, cause obviously evidence-based, you have to do stuff that's supported, you know, it's, it's, it's out there. This is why I'm doing it. What about when, when times you come up and like, oh, so, like, you know, reasoning through this and, and through that, this might make sense. I want to try it. You know, how do you go about that? Maybe being more of a researcher yourself and, and doing, you know, evidence within your own self and your own practice. How do you go about that? Or do you always try and obviously try on, you know, yourself and other people first probably before going athletes or?
1: You know, I I think the difficult thing with that is kind of the premise of the question of the idea of like, can we, can we really say that if we do one, if we do intervention A, we're going to get outcome B versus, you know, was there something else at play? And so I, I try, I mean, look, everybody does it. Everybody gives somebody a cue and it makes them feel better. And they're like, yes, figured it out. You know, I got it. I just had to, it was that left inner hamstring and that, you know, But uh, like the PRI people, but like everybody's done, everybody's given a cue and their patients felt better. And, you know, from the first time you ever told somebody to not have as much of a lordotic curve and it made their back feel better. And you're like, I got this figured out, man. You know? And so um, I try to, I try to temper my own excitement from those things. And I try to not allow those things to pull me completely in one direction or the other. And I try to still apply kind of, let's say I'm giving, let's say that example of giving somebody a cue, they feel better. I still try to apply variability to that person and not get too caught up on that one thing because I never want them to think that there's like one specific magical fix for them, whether it's, uh, you know, manual therapy or, or a needle or, uh, a BFR cuff or just the cue that I give them. I want them to kind of really feel like they have power. They have, they, they have control over their own bodies and they can feel these things out on their own. So um, I don't know. And I know I'm not answering your question very well, but it's, it's difficult for me to, to kind of work on the premise of like experimenting with people because I think that's what we always do. You know, I think we're always experimenting with people and it's um, it's just, what I've learned over time is to give things more time and to not let things pull me too far in one direction or the other, you know? Yeah. So like if, if a patient comes in and they tell me they feel a little bit worse, let's say we're working with a pain patient. Tell me to feel a little bit worse. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, then, you know, let's, well, let, we think about what we did last time. And if they tell me they feel better, I do the same thing. All right, well, let's, you know, like I'm, I'm not, I try to not get too up or too down and I try to kind of keep things going on the right path. And that's what brings me back to those systematic reviews of there are different things that we can do. They all kind of work. They all kind of don't work. And, you know, but generally people do continue to get better over time. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's something that can be tempting to do as a young clinician to, you know, uh, that's like strength coach one oh one. like every strength coach has their own kind of like paradigm that they see everything through. And I'm, and I'm, I see it going that way for physio sometimes, but I'm hopeful that we can have more and more critical thinkers that don't think that, you know, they figured out that one thing that helps all their patients and and that they don't, that they don't think that they are. No, no, I I apologize. Uh, And and that they don't think that they are like constantly experimenting because like that's,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess going back to when you, you said, you know, you are, you know, always kind of trying things out as you relate that back to the fact of, you know, you know, the same thing, a paper is probably never going to be able to give you, you know, exactly real life, it's going to give you the best evidence at the moment. So even you're experimenting within using that paper and how you can use it in your own setting, which is obviously gonna be different than how it was used there. So you say you kind of stay more towards papers as much um, as possible with minor tweaks to make it more applicable to you rather than go way off topic and try something completely different. Is that what you'd kind of summarize or not?
1: Yeah, I would. So I, I mean, I definitely go, like, I don't have to like learn an exercise in a paper to, yeah. to use it or anything you know, and, and so I would say that papers give me a framework and an idea yeah. of what I need to do, you know, from a anatomical or pathoanatomical anatomical standpoint, pa- papers tell me or tell us, you know, the, the result we want from our loading the way that we want tissue to respond the physiological uh, adaptations that we want from these interventions that we do and then the way in which we actually apply those interventions can be different depending on the individual how they're presenting how you know how they respond to to specific exercises like Here's a perfect example, like the Jack Hickey paper from a couple years ago on pain-free pain free versus pain threshold hamstring rehabilitation and, and kind of open up this idea. Uh, we already had this idea that a little pain was okay from some of the Joe Cook research on, on patellar tendinopathy and that idea that you can push into pain, it's okay. So especially for contractile tissue. So Jack Hickey and, and his colleagues were able to show that you know the the group that pushed into a 4 out of 10 pain for hamstring rehab actually did better than the group that didn't at all now in that paper they had a specific protocol that they used it was like a beautifully simple hamstring protocol it was like you know rdls to single leg rdls single leg double bridge slide outs to single leg slide outs and like one other exercise and it was like super simple but it worked it's like I don't have to use those specific exercises, you know. Like those are all great exercises, but I can still use that framework of the pain, the mm. pain threshold, and the physiological information that I got from that paper is still informing my intervention, even if I'm using uh, totally different exercises that are much more sexy and Instagramy. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I guess one one last kind of bigger question here. Uh, if you want to go either principles or if you want to talk about papers or some general things that you're doing, I guess, what, what are two things, one S and C based more and one physio based more that um, you, you really either use now or you think, I think, uh, I guess more direction of are commonly misunderstood <clears throat> and not obviously. Um, yeah. Either misunderstood by athletes or practitioners, two things that you think um, I guess you'd want to share in each field really quick.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that in the physio world, there's a movement to just load it and this move, this idea of like getting strong. And there's been some pushback from it. Like Jared Powell was part of a paper uh, editorial in the British Journal of Sports Medicine where they were looking at, okay, but is strength actually the issue with shoulders, you know, oftentimes. And and it's not, but loading the, loading the shoulder and helping somebody to achieve pain-free movement has its value, you know, in building confidence, et cetera. And so I think that, um, you know, and, and people like myself who've been putting out information on the Internet for uh, more than a couple of years now and, and teaching others about strength and conditioning through the physio lens have contributed to this movement. But I think that uh, young physical therapists and physios are a little bit enamored with strength training and they're going too far. The pendulum has swung too far in that direction. And I think that, um, you know, what we need to find is a good middle ground where first of all we're learning actually about strength training because um you're not grandfathered in to be a strength coach just because you're a physio. You know, there's a lot of physios that have a very poor understanding of anything strength and conditioning related. They wouldn't ever be able to sit in a room with strength coaches and actually have that conversation even though they think they can cuz they go to CrossFit, you know. And so I think that the pendulum has probably swung a little bit too far that way and we need to be, you know, like I've even had students where I'll ask them, like, what was your idea with that intervention? And they have nothing beyond the explanation of, oh, I just wanted them to get stronger, whereas we're working on strength. And I'm like, no, but there's so much more to it than that, you know? And so if we're going to start talking in those terms, we need to understand different types of speeds of strength, different different types of, I mean, this is simple stuff, but different types of contractions, what they do, how those play over into sport, how our functional performance testing for ACLs might um, be influenced by the different strength training interventions that we're doing, you know, their, their, the basis, their entire basis of understanding plyometrics is like, oh, contrast training, we'll just go do this and then that, you know, their needs. So I think that, um, a lot of physios would be that want to, they, that they want, if they want to live in this world, they need to learn it better. The strength and condition side of things. And then I think that for strength coaches and for the fitness world uh, you know, and this applies to physio too, but everybody's getting too cute and creative. And it's like, I was looking at my explore page yesterday and it's just like made me want to puke. It was just like, I'm like, this is why I'm like, not posting very much right now. Like, it's just like, I was just like, what are these people doing? Like my entire explore page was full of these people doing these drills where they were like jumping in between four different circles and doing like half turns and like doing these like scissor kicks and like, you know, everything was just like looking really cool, but like you could walk into like you know a training facility for uh, olympic level track and field athletes or sport athletes like soccer players football players and they would never be doing anything like this and it's like what what is this this is not sport specific training the the whole idea of sport specificity is completely overstated you get your sport specific training from playing your sport right if you're if you're in a training facility like like mine here you're not doing your sport it shouldn't you're just slowing down and and distilling down and and really kind of ruining the training stimulus by trying to be a a coach that you don't actually know how to coach that. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, a lot of these things are just influenced by the world that we live in where there's like this kind of this constant turnover of uh, clickbait information. And um, you know, I try to not go too down, too far down that cynical pathway. There's enough people that do that, but like, that's i think that these are trends and kind of misconceptions that uh i'm hopeful will be better understood uh in due time
0: yeah no i think yeah those are two great points and yeah answer the question answer question perfectly so yeah no i think that was a good episode um kind of like i said summarizing how you sift through how you implement and then talking a little bit about um some extra stuff in the end so thank you very much for taking the time to be on uh if you just want to share where uh, obviously you know, you know i know you guys put out a lot of, or you put out a lot of information on instagram you're a part of physio network etc if you just want to share a couple of of those where people can follow you um get your information in, and i'll put those in the show notes for you
1: absolutely yeah uh strength coach therapy is my instagram all one word strength coach therapy and um I also have an online training company where we provide evidence-based education information, Citizen Athletics, and uh, we have a blog there at citizenathletics.com, and that's with uh, Sam Spinelli. And uh, Sam's an absolute stud in the field, too, so uh, somebody you got to look up if you're not familiar with him. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that those are two good places to find the work that I'm doing online right now.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you again very much for taking the time to be on. Thanks so much, Patrick. Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you'd enjoy the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning content and injury rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood. on my website, www.Patrick-Wood.com. All this information can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening.